All right, uh, it's great to see you guys today. If you guys don't know me, uh, my name is Kevin, and I'm the youth uh, minister here. And as Hanley said, I have uh, the privilege of concluding this uh, sermon series. And as I thought about what it means to uh, develop resilient and faithful disciple-makers in post-Christian worlds, a lot of times we look to the younger generation. Um, for adults, for most adults here, we know what we believe. We know the faith in the Lord and Savior that we believe in, but maybe there's a part of us that we look over our shoulder and wonder, will the younger generation follow in our footsteps? Will the youth and children have the same faith in Jesus Christ? And maybe that's a question some of adults are asking. And so today I want to talk about what it means to awaken godly zeal in Gen Z. And for the purpose of today's sermon, I just intend Gen Z to apply to 7th to 12th grade, so the youth in this room. And when I say older generation in this sermon, I just mean college and above. That's just a blanket uh, statement. So collegians, you are old generation today. Um, so what is zeal? When I first heard this word when I was a kid, uh, when I heard the word zealous, I thought, mom, I think they're pronouncing jealous wrong. Is zeal like jealousy? Um, but Google gives a really nice working definition. Google defines zeal as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. Great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. So it's ambition, it's passion, it's excitement, and it's directed at a purpose or a goal. And one thing that I love about working with youth is that they are overflowing with zeal and ambition. They're easily excited to do things, to chase their dreams. That's something that maybe as we get older, we get more pessimistic, and we're like, ah, if I try this, I don't know if that will actually work. But there's something about being a youth, you're still willing to maybe dream big. And that's something I really love about working with youth, whether it's maybe a new restaurant that opens up, and they're willing to drive out an hour, wait in a line for an hour to try this food that's done in 30 seconds. Maybe it's when the band is in town, they, you know, stay, wake up really early, log in and to buy the tickets. They have this zeal that pushes them towards a certain cause. Maybe on a sports team, they want to win the league championships, so they practice, they watch film, they eat right because they have an end goal. Maybe they want a, a good future, so they study hard, uh, they go to tutoring, they do everything they can to set themselves up for a good college and a good job afterwards. Young people are filled with zeal. I think the question is, is it directed at a godly zeal? And actually in the Bible, it talks about a zeal a lot. Um, last week, Hanley talked about a bad type of zeal, the political zealots of the New Testament, where they had enthusiasm, they had energy, but it was directed against the Roman government that was ruling over them at the time. But the Bible also talks about a good zeal, that there is a zeal and a passion and enthusiasm that's directed at God, directed at godliness. And I think that's a type of zeal that we want to go after. And so actually in today's sermon, it might seem a little strange, but I actually want to focus on the trait of self-control. Because self-control is that superpower that allows us to channel and harness zeal and passion towards God. So in your bulletin, you'll see that I have two points today. Number one is the spiritual superpower of self-control. And number two is the necessity of God's grace to produce self-control. And to do that, we're going to look at the book of Titus. And Paul writes the, this book to Titus. And Titus is one of Paul's trusted companions who was tasked to raise up a healthy church in the island of Crete. 
and Paul instructs Titus how to raise up different generations, different age groups in the ways of godliness. And so in today's sermon, it's not a purely expository sermon where I'm going to explain every little detail, but I do want to highlight certain areas that show the role of self-control in pursuing godly zeal. And so turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. And I want us to pay attention to how often self-control shows up in our life or in the Bible. So Titus chapter 2, verses 1, this is what it says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of god may not be reviled verse six likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us So it's helpful to have some context in this passage. If you read the previous verses right before it, Paul is condemning false teachers. False teachers who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. We can probably imply that these false teachers, they lack self-control, and so they lived a life that was detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, as we see in uh, chapter 1, verses 16. So in contrast to the false teachers, Paul instructs Titus, when you work with the church of Crete, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, sound character must go hand in hand with sound doctrine. Christians must practice what they preach. So that in verse, chapter 2, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled, and in verse 8, that our opponents will be put to shame and have nothing evil to say about us. So by living with self-control, we can reflect the right character that accurately accurately reflects a high view of God. Now, I want to give probably a simple definition of self-control, and I'll just define it this way. It's the ability to master one's desires and zeal towards godliness. So in today's sermon, I just want to argue that self-control harnesses zeal towards godliness. So you're going to hear things like self-control, zeal, godliness all throughout today's sermon. And so in this superpower of self-control, Paul commands Titus to do two things with this trait of self-control. Number one, he wants Titus to teach self-control in godliness. And number two, he wants Titus to exemplify self-control in godliness. So let's start with teaching self-control in godliness. In a world that is full of distraction, full of temptation, Self-control is a superpower. It must be taught, and especially in a world that teaches us already to say yes to every sinful desire and ambition and to say no to God's way. Self-control helps us stand firm in this world that we live in. And I want us to notice that Paul actually commands Titus to teach self-control to every age group, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. 
in chapter 2, verse 2, to the older men, it says that older men are to to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, and it's implied to the older women in verse 3 that they are not to be slanderers or be slaves to much wine, which actually requires self-control to not gossip or tear down another person's reputation or to not lose self-control with wine. To the younger women, verse 5, the older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, and the younger men, they just have one command, urge them to be self-controlled. And notice that in verse 6, to the younger men, there's a stronger command, there's a stronger directive to urge them, challenge them, call them to be, to be self-controlled. I think in the world that we live in, maybe our world doesn't love self-control. We think self-control is that friend that says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. The speed limit says it's 65 miles per hour. Why are you going 70? Self-control seems like that friend that shows up that nobody wants them to be around. Like, who invited them? But if everyone said yes to their desires and to their passions, is that really the world you want to live in? If everyone said yes to their desires and passions? Don't our uh, jobs, maybe our grades, our performances suffer because we can't focus when we have a task at hand. Maybe students can't diligently study because they have Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and a bag of Cheetos on their desk. We don't have self-control. Could it be that our relationships, our friendships, our marriages and families, sometimes they're damaged because we lose self-control. We say things we don't mean to say. We do things that we regret. And we splurge on things that we can't afford because we don't have self-control. Don't ministries crumble when the leaders lack self-control and they commit a sin that disqualifies them? It seems like we're always hearing nowadays in the news of a ministry or church that one of their pastors or leaders loses self-control. And I argue that even kingdoms fall without self-control. If only King David had the self-control to walk away when he saw Bathsheba from afar. And get this, even humanity is doomed for a lack of self-control. If only Adam and Eve had a self-control to say, to say no to eating the forbidden fruit, perhaps we'd still be living in paradise in the presence of God. So from our first parents until now, 2022, we desperately need self-control. It is a superpower in a world full of distraction, temptation, and endless possibilities. I want to speak to the students just for a little bit. Imagine what your life would look like if you had self-control. Imagine if you had the self-control to say no to scrolling hours and hours on your phone through social media, to say no to binging TV shows, to say no to hours of playing video games. None of those things are wrong in and of itself, but in moderation, excessively. Imagine you had the ability to say no to excessive spending, to say no to the evil of pornography, to say no to the evil of underage drinking and drugs, to say no to running with the wrong crowd. Imagine if you had the self-control to say no to these things. Do you understand how many minutes, hours, days, maybe years, not to mention the mental and spiritual damage that you will avoid in your life? Do you know that self-control is a superpower that you need? And because you've saved and saved yourself from this damage and saved yourself time, imagine the teenager who can say yes to godliness. That because they've saved so much time in their life, avoiding the evil in their life, they can say yes to being in the presence of the living God 
through the word and prayer. They can say yes to be at church, to love God, to be with his people, to confess sin, to use their gifts to serve God. They can, they can say yes to seeing their campus as a ministry field, to reach their friends who don't know Jesus, to say yes to investing in hobbies and that are life-giving and give glory to God to enjoy the gifts that he's given to us because now we have all this time because we have the self-control to flee from temptation. So for the youth in this room, do you know that self-control is a superpower that you and I need? It helps us, say, helps us to say no to evil and yes to God. And so if we want our younger generation to exemplify and to live self-controlled lives, there's actually an implication for the older generation in this room that if we want the younger generation to follow faithfully, we have to lead by example. And that's why Paul says to exemplify self-control and godliness. Look with me at verses 7 to 8, how Paul commands Titus. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul says to Titus, if you want to be realistic and you want your church to actually grow in sound character and sound doctrine, you have to show by example. You have to practice what you preach. And so you have to show yourself to be a model of good works. In an earlier sermon, Gabe had a helpful insight that good works is simply godliness put into action. Good works is godliness lived out. No, we're not saved by good works. We're saved by faith alone, but genuine faith must result in good works. So for the older generation, we need your example. The younger generation needs to see living examples of godliness and self-control. Godly zeal is contagious. When the youth look up to the older generation, they'll copy and imitate and see the things that you cherish. This is something that the Apostle Paul, a couple years earlier in prison, he recognized. When he was in prison, he wrote something to the church of Philippi, and he expressed and demonstrated this idea of contagious zeal. Allow me to read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Paul says about his imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonments, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is in prison, but he knows that he's being imprisoned for Christ, and that gives courage to the other brothers and sisters in Christ to continue living boldly. Paul leads the way and inspires zeal in his brothers and sisters in the faith. For the older generation, we beg you, we need you to live a godly life, to show us how it's done, because godly zeal is contagious. Now, believe it or not, I think there's a lot of things that can be done actually in this service that can set a good example for the younger generation. I think of things like singing with joy. Worship is a perfect example to express your zeal and your passion towards a living God. I love joining English service at the end of the month when youth is combined because I join a room that is zealous and joyful for the Lord. Now, if you're here every week, maybe it just seems normal. This is how it always sounds like every single week. But for youth, this is not what we get every single week. 
One thing that I regret during COVID, it was a joy to bring back Unicoi online, um, to meet on Sundays. But one thing, a mistake that I made during COVID was I didn't do worship online. It felt like the audio was too hard to sync up, so I just didn't do it. And after we came back in person, I realized our singing doesn't seem as joyful. It doesn't seem as lively. I know some of these students are believers, but how come they're not singing? And I asked some of these leaders, and they said, well, if no one else sings, I feel awkward singing. I don't want to be the only one person singing. So for you to walk into this room and have a whole room singing genuinely from the heart, it sends a message. It ministers to us much more than you think it does. So don't stop singing joyfully from the heart. It really sets a godly example. Second thing is treasuring the preaching of God's word. When students come into this room, they're watching and observing how the older generation is receiving the word of God. And they're spread out throughout this whole room. If they see us hungry for the word of God, that sends a message. And so the reverse is also true. If they walk into a room where no one is singing, or if they walk into a room where everyone tunes out during the sermon, checking an email, playing a game on their phone, that sends a message that the word of God, singing to God, is not very important. And so for better or for worse, zeal is contagious. The younger generation, they need you guys to set a godly example. And we're so glad, I'm so happy to experience this on the last Sunday of the month when I walk in and I can, we can just sing with joy. And so even outside the English service, I'm really happy and privileged to say that there are so many of our volunteers who demonstrate an example of godliness. They model self-control. They model godliness in the lives of these youth. I know many of you are not here on Friday nights or Sundays during uh, Sunday school, youth Sunday school or uh, Friday night fellowships, but in Unicoi, which is our Friday night fellowship, we try to have two counselors per small group, godly young adults um, who demonstrate what it means to follow Jesus. And for many of these volunteers, they walk with their students um, year after year. So potentially they could be with their students for six years from seventh grade to 12th grade as volunteers. It's incredible. And it goes outside Friday nights where they meet up for discipleship one-on-one. They organize socials. For our science school teachers, many of them, they don't move up with their students, but they've been teaching faithfully longer than I've been here at this church, which is more than 10 years. Some of these science school teachers have been teaching longer than 10 years faithfully as volunteers. And some of them, they rotate in to help me preach in youth service. Some of them join me on mission trip. Some of them join me on socials. So it's not just confined to Sunday school. It's meant for so much more. And in our youth service, we have four or five young adults, some collegians, who are invested in the worship of our youth. And they work with our students to make youth service a place where they can truly experience godly zeal. Now, I share all this in one, in one sense because I know you don't always get a glimpse of what happens in our youth ministry. But I share this because in a sense, I want us to see the goodness of God, that we don't have to panic that God has been good to our church. God has provided godly, older generation adults to pour into the lives of these students. So I trust in God's plan for this church. But in another sense, I do ask for your prayers because I do notice that as the years go by, the younger students, they are more shaped by the secular values. I do realize we keep having to talk about the same hot topic issues because the younger, because the younger students have been shaped by these secular and worldly values. So pray for us, because we don't want to lift our foot off the pedal. There's still much work 
to be done. And so this is the power, the superpower of self-control and the call to exemplify it. Now, this might bring up another problem. Because if you're a youth, maybe as you hear this sermon, you might feel discouraged. You might think, well, self-control seems amazing, but that doesn't seem like anything I could ever have. I have all these urges and desires and impulses, and I just can't seem to get better. It feels hopeless. And maybe if you're an adult, maybe this is discouraging as well because you might feel, I don't think I'm that great of an example. I think there are areas of my life that still need radical transformation. I don't really think I'm someone worth imitating. I fall so short of what it means to be a godly example. It feels hopeless. And this is why we need to rely on the grace of God. Not just at the point of salvation, but every hour, every day. In our lives, we need the grace of God. And that leads us to our second and final point. In order to even cultivate and develop self-control, we need the grace of God because it's God's grace that produces self-control. You and I, even if we are saved and committed to the Lord Jesus, we will fall short. We will mess up. We will lose self-control. But the grace of God produces a godliness in us through this life. Read with me in verses 11 to 14. This is what the grace of God is like. Verses 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's stop there. So God's plan of grace is to empower his people to live godly lives. I just have a very simple visual timeline because I think it helps to understand what it means to live the Christian life. If you are a Christian, this is God's grace. This is your story. Let's start from the left, that if you're a Christian, you have trusted in salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so apart from the grace of God's salvation, every human, no matter how good you are, will fall short of the glory of God. We don't deserve God's grace. We deserve God's wrath and eternal separation. That's a bad news. But 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to live, die, and ascend for our sins. This is the grace of salvation. It is 100% God's grace and 0% us. But when we commit our lives to the Lord Jesus, then we must embrace on a journey called sanctification, which is simply the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus, the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. Verse 12 says this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace isn't just save you for salvation. It also sanctifies and trains you to be like Jesus. So if, you, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I lack self-control. 
I don't think I can control my urges and passions. Well, the grace of God is for you. The word training, it should indicate that the process is a lifelong progression. It's not instant. When you're saved, that's instant. You're instantly inserted into the family of God. You are justified. But sanctification, that's a process. It does not happen overnight. So just as nobody can become perfect in a sport or instrument in a day, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect as we follow Jesus. It's a sanctification process when God's grace trains us to say no to evil and to say yes to his ways. Now, this sanctification, it doesn't last forever. There will come a day when it will be complete and we will be glorified. That's the crown symbol on the slide. Look at verses 13 and 14. As we waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and in the not-too-distant future, he will return again. And when, when he returns again, he will glorify his people, which is to say he will remove all sin, he will remove their, their sin nature, and he will fully instill in us a glory and holiness perfectly. 2 Timothy 4, 8 says, There is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to believers on that day who love and long for his appearing. And so even though we're in the process of being sanctified, do we long for that day of Jesus' return? Do we look forward to the day when he will make us complete and whole? Jesus died so that we could be redeemed from lawlessness, rebellion against the law, and to purify people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul purposely uses Old Testament language to show that just as God made Israel a people of his own possession, now through Jesus, God makes sinners, both Jew and Gentile, a people of his own possession, his chosen people who are passionate, ambitious, and zealous towards godliness, both privately in character, but also publicly. This is your story. If you are a believer, this story of grace is yours. Do not forget it, because if we forget that this is our story, sooner or later, our zeal will become directed at other things. Maybe bad things, maybe neutral things, maybe good things, but we might miss out on the best thing, Jesus Christ. So God's grace is with us every step of the way. Here's my big idea for today. God's grace trains believers to develop a self-control that harnesses zeal and passion towards a life of godliness and good works. And so it's God's grace that saves you and sanctifies you and helps you develop a self-control. And that self-control looks at all the passions and ambitions you have in this life, and it directs it in a God-word intention. I want to end by maybe sharing two words, one word to the older generation and one word to the younger generation. To the older generation, I respectfully ask, have patience with the younger generation. I know teenagers are often unlovable. They can sometimes be annoying. Sometimes I'm at a mall or a public setting and they're just goofing off and I'm like, what is wrong with these people? And I remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to love these people. And then Titus 3, verse 3 humbles me. It reminds me, Kevin, 
do you remember what you were like in high school? I'm like, oh yeah, God, I'm so sorry. Okay, I should be patient. This is what Titus 3.3 says. It says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so as I think about when I lose patience, I think about my unsaved days, when I was at high school or when I was chasing passions and pleasures, when I was foolish and disobedient, when I made mistakes that I still regret to this day. I remember, how could I lose patience? I was once just like them. And so I asked the old generation, have patience with us, with the younger generation. Remember our unsaved days so it keeps us humble and patient because these youth, they're still finding their way. They're still stumbling. They will be immature. They will be sometimes a little annoying, but they are the future and the people of God. They may not be fully mature, but they are fully capable of knowing God, using their gifts to serve God. I've seen it, and I've been so overwhelmed by it. There's enough adults in their life who have already written them off. They need the family at FCBC to take them under their wing. I want them to walk into this church to know that I might not know this auntie and uncle, but I know they have my back. I know they love me. I know if I had a question, a, just help, that they would help me with that. I would love for the youth to experience church in that way, not just Unicoi, but the entire English congregation. So have patience with us, with the younger generation. To the younger generation, my words to you is to not waste your zeal. John Piper has a book, Don't Waste Your Life. I kind of copied it. Don't waste your zeal. As young people, you naturally exude zeal and ambition, drive, and optimism. You're willing to dream big, and you want to accomplish great things. I think my fear is not that you won't have zeal. I know you guys do have ambition and drive. My fear is that you will direct your zeal and your drive and excitement at things that will not last and will not matter in the long-term things. I'm not saying don't care about school. Care about school. Care about your passions. Care about those things, but not in such a way where it replaces God. God must come first. Your godly zeal for him makes a difference in all of your lives. Channel your excitement, your zeal, and your and passion towards God and his kingdom and good works, and it will make an eternal impact, not just in this life, but in the life to come. I am so proud and excited of the youth that I get to work with, and I love to see you guys, whether at a sports game, when you get into a certain college, when you uh, have some sort of honor, I'm really excited for that. But what makes me so honored and privileged is when you begin to live a life of godliness. I get so happy and excited when you use your gifts to serve at church, when you try out for the AV team for the first time, when you moderate for the first time, when you join welcome team for the first time. I get excited when you ask a question about a faith, about the sermon after, uh, during small groups. I get excited when you go into your campuses to share the good news of Jesus with your non-believing friends. I get excited when you go up to a stranger and you share the faith and you witness about the gospel of Jesus. So remember that you have zeal, a lot of it, 
and life is not going to get easier. When you grow up, you'll have a job, a family, uh, more responsibilities. There is a rare season that you have right now to make a difference in the world. And I truly believe God loves to use young people. He's done it in the Bible, and he's willing to do it now. Are you willing to allow God to use your zeal for his kingdom? And so the grace of Christ will bring us home. Christ has saved us. Christ is sanctifying you, and Christ will return to glorify and make his people complete. Let's rest on this grace as we continue to channel our zeal towards godliness. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come before your presence, we know that there are so much possibilities, there are so much temptations in this life. For a young person, it's overwhelming. God, I pray that your grace would first save their soul, but then begin to sanctify them to develop self-control. And I pray that this self-control would direct them towards a life of godliness. Lord, I know that there are students right now who are dealing with addictions, they're dealing with habitual sins, things for which they have no self-control. Lord, I pray that your grace would lift up these students so that they experience the goodness of your grace. Lord, I pray for the older generation in this room. Lord, I pray that you would equip them, lift them up with their strength so that they can also be an example of godliness and self-control. Lord, if they feel un, uh, incapable, Lord, your grace makes them capable to be an example. And God, I pray for maybe the person in this room who has not yet placed their faith in you and they're hearing what your grace is all about. Lord, I pray that their hearts will understand just how amazing and overwhelming and majestic and beautiful your grace is that takes sinners who deserve your wrath, but you show them and you shower them with grace, unlimited grace. I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts to see you as Lord and Savior and our Heavenly Father. So, Lord, help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.